This is Driven by Data, the podcast. Welcome to Driven by Data, the podcast brought to you by Orbition Group and hosted by me, Kyle Winterbottom. Orbition Group is delighted to bring this podcast series, which boasts some of the most high-profile data, analytics, and AI thought leaders from across the globe. Each episode details the journey to the top of our industry's most respected leadership figures, while bringing unique insights drawn from first-hand experience on the industry's most trending topics, told in order to share knowledge, experiences, and ideas to inspire, innovate, and give back to the global data and analytics community. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Welcome to Driven by Data, the podcast. Today, I am absolutely delighted to be joined by Samir Rahman, who is the director of Insight at Royal Mint. I got that right, Samir, did I? I hope. That's right. Yeah, yeah. there we go. Perfect. Makes a change. Um, so <laughs> where we always start, Samir, um, is ask our guests to give themselves a, I guess, a brief introduction into their background and, and journey to date. Because um, Despite my best efforts, uh, I'd never be able to do that much justice. So if, you, if you'd if you be so kind. Yeah, thanks, Kyle. Uh, great to be on the podcast. Uh, journey to date is, I think, data being a nascent industry, all of us have got, their, uh, got our own stories. I think my journey started off uh, really when I was doing my master, master's in business. And the penny really dropped for me when I was doing my dissertation on Tesco Club Card. Uh, that is where I realized how data can change business operating models, and if it if it can do that for a for a behemoth like Tesco, it can obviously has a lot of scope for doing it for much smaller, medium size, uh, and big size businesses. So that is where I think really my journey started. I think that is where I got the mission, saying, yeah, okay, uh, having done my engineering as a first degree, I think this is where I can get my business hat and my data hat on to make a tangible difference uh, to to grow businesses. That's how it all started. And then uh, that was back in 2004. And then back 17 years uh, forward, it's uh, been using data to achieve different outcomes in various roles, in various organizations, as a consultant, as a freelance, as a permanent employee, as an interim. So uh, yeah, been through, been through, uh, been through quite a lot, all interesting stuff, uh, all quite diverse challenges to solve uh, with very tangible, uh, interesting outcomes. Uh, so worked through Lloyd's HBOS uh, in, in the initial days, uh, then heading up the data science team within GoCompare. Public sector worked for HMRC and now at the Royal Mint, obviously, uh, and being a consultant for six years, looking after various uh, various industry sectors. Uh, but yeah, using data for different backgrounds in risk, in marketing, in business, in digital, uh, various outcomes. That's that's in a nutshell. That's uh, that's the introduction. Yep. Perfect. Well, there's some um, some impressive names on your uh, on your CV, to say the least. Um, so, look, give us a little bit of insight into the Royal Mint for any of our listeners that might not be too familiar. Um, I doubt there'll be many of those, given the size of the organisation and the, the name. But um, just in case, well, the Royal Mint is quite an interesting business. I don't think even I was familiar before I uh, decided to constantly join. I, I was familiar with. I mean, everybody. When you speak about the Royal Mint, everybody thinks about the manufacturing and the coins in our pockets, which is obviously part of part of the business model and quite a big part as well. We are dictated directly by the Treasury, uh, so again, quite uh, we, we basically we can't mess things up because it's very uh, high in the food chain. Well, so that's one thing. The other two interesting business models with very few people know about, or people know about only if they are investor or a collector is one is the typical e-commerce retail business of uh, selling commemorative coins. If you go onto the Royal Mint website, you'll see the host of products that we sell. So it's a very much e-commerce retail, a quite significant proportion of our profits and revenue comes from that. Uh, and then a very uh, high growth business is the precious metals business, which is the gold, silver, platinum, palladium trading, both physical gold and digital gold. Things like pensions, gold for pensions, and all. So you've got physical gold as in gold coins, gold bars, and things like that. Uh, it's quite an international business. So again, uh, I didn't appreciate how international Royal Mint was, considering in some parts of our business, more than 50% of our profits and revenue comes from international rather than the UK, certainly the gold business. So yeah, it's a, it's kind of what makes it interesting is it's three business models into one. It's the manufacturing where, where there are different applications of data. It's the e-commerce retail, very fast-paced, and then there is the investor arm in, in precious metals. Again, a very dynamic, 
you have to change things with gold prices changes every year. So that's what the Royal Mint is today. There's lots planned uh, for the Royal Mint of the future as well. Nice, nice. So I guess before we jump into the meat of the topic, where, where does your role at the current time sit within the organization? And I guess what are you tasked with achieving from a high level perspective? Yeah, I think what makes the role interesting, Kyle, really, is is the depth and breadth of it. So, as I said, I mean, my team is uh, my team caters to uh, when I say the breadth, my team caters to all the business models. So, for the manufacturing part, we look at forecasting, we look at predictive maintenance, we look at uh, we look at a lot, lot of models which says resource planning uh, for the manufacturing guys and things like that. For the e-commerce retail, it's a typical application of digital analytics, uh, testing, optimization, customer segmentation, all the all the personalization stuff, the customer journeys, how to make them much more much more personalized. And for the investor arm, it's very dynamic. So dy- dynamic pricing models, uh, market market sensing, market sizing, which is the next big growth market. Uh, so it's quite that's the that's the uh, that's the breadth of it. And obviously the depth of it is we cater to right from a how did your campaign perform to write what should be my strategy be which is a new good market to enter how do we how do we open up new revenue streams so the, the team provides insight into quite a quite a strategic to quite an operational level and we solve business challenges and answer key questions uh, some of them even before they have come in so we have we have proactively proposed quite a few things uh, at a very strategic level which have currently been uh, currently been taken up and and developed into a new business revenue stream and a proposition mm-hmm. yeah Interesting. Very, very interesting stuff. And I think kind of leads quite nicely into the topic right of today around putting the data agenda into the boardroom. And I think um, a lot has been made of and spoken about and talked about and debated over and over again around the impact of data and analytics in an organization and maybe why you know, these initiatives haven't been as successful as they ought to have been. And often we come back and land on a topic somewhere around culture and adoption and buy-in from stakeholders and business executives and, and so on and so forth. I guess with so much talk going on in the data analytics world right now, how do you actually go about putting data and analytics and insights on an agenda in a boardroom? I think, I think the key thing is two, two critical things for me is one is show me the money. That's that's the main thing. I think with the executive team, any other team, I mean, I think it was one of those films who said the business of business is to do business. I don't know which film it was, but it's, it's quite a good quote. And uh, as an analyst, we have to be quite up to speed with that. Anything that we do either has to, to increase profits or revenue, decrease cost, or do something tangible for customer satisfaction. Those th- if, if you're not hitting those three things and if you can't prove those three things to the board room, then basically ears will be closed. So as, as analysts, we have to, we can we can be as fanciful in our technology, we can be as fanciful in our approach and methodology. Uh, it's no good until you can prove the outcome or you can justify the outcome that you're driving. So that's one thing. The other thing is simplicity, uh, quite simple. We can be quite complicated in the way we present. Uh, I always, with with being, first of all, if you're showing the money, you have to present the conclusions first and the analysis later, which is which is one of the key points I would like to make. Really, as analysts, we go through multiple pages of multiple pages of documents or slides, and by the time everybody is asleep, then we present the conclusion. <laughs> I think we have to present the conclusion first. So the story should be upside down, saying you will make X million if you. Basically, if you invest in something that you're trying to justify, and then you go and then you get them hooked into that money, and then you you've got their interest and engagement after that. So yeah, so the, to round up, two things very not very simple, uh, but two things very important is show show them the money conclusions first, analysis later, uh, and then in obviously simplicity. Simplicity is the key thing. Yeah, what I was thinking about then. Samir, while you were speaking, especially around the conclusion first analysis later, um, I, I did a, a degree in journalism, right? And obviously, there's a whole host of 
talk in the industry around how data storytelling you know is so impactful to obtaining that buy-in and, and all of that type of stuff and I guess that makes sense right because if you think about how newspapers sell headlines they go, yeah. they go with a big bold headline and then they, yeah. tell you, they tell you how you how they got there underneath right <laughs> you know yeah. so it'd be they wouldn't yeah. sell if they give you know that you started with a a big long paragraph first and then the headline at the bottom probably yeah. you know, and everybody know. reads the headlines but uh, but not everybody reads the stories <laughs> yeah exactly exactly and i think you made another great point at the start there around you know you can do the fanciest things in the world but unless people can see the the value then you know it's kind of pointless but i think um i was having this debate just the other day on on linkedin where you know it doesn't matter in my eyes what organizations are, are doing with data analytics, whether you know they're trying to enter new markets and therefore increase sales and revenues or profits or however they, they track that, whether they're trying to you know reduce um, cost, whether it's improving efficiencies, whether it's mitigating risk. Ultimately, all of that stuff gets done to impact the bottom line from a commercial perspective, right? Absolutely. And, and that was my point saying if you can go and show what those facts and figures look like from the bottom line, then you're more likely to get a seat at the table and, and at least be entertained for a conversation. Um, and we had a bit of back and forth, but overall, I think there was, you know, an overarching agreement there. I guess we've, we've started to touch on some aspects here around getting that buy-in and getting your foot through the boardroom door, essentially. But I guess if there's advice out there for people beyond what you've kind of said how do you go about creating that buy-in and i guess the various levels of, of buy-in to to be allowed into that conversation to start with yeah so i mean good question i mean one thing that has worked for me quite successfully in the past is understand the people who are in the boardroom and give them what's in it for them so for example if you have a one-to-one -one, make them their friends so explain to them on a one-to-one -one basis before going out of the way learn about their business problem and get and try try the data to solve one burning question or the pain point they have. So, for example, for in some of the organizations, not in the Royal Mint, I worked I, I worked before. There was a huge problem for churn, with churn, for example, employee churn, and we created a very simple predictive model saying the employee behaviors. So you can predict churn three or four months before they are trying to actually move. So it's a type of managers, it's the personality profile, it's the triggers that they do. So. And that solved, not solved completely, but that helped a lot with the hit to the HR team. And obviously, if you solve their problem, they became your friends and they start listening to you. Similarly, we have solved a lot of forecasting being a big pain point for the finance teams. And 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 they, I mean, in some of the businesses, even in Go Compare or, or the businesses before, there was spreadsheet-based forecasting. Last year we did this, increased by five percent. We do this. And we went in and saying, no, no, we can develop a much better, we didn't talk about the algorithm, but we said we can develop a much bigger, bigger forecast, but much better, much accurate forecasting for you. Don't worry about what you're doing in the background. We, I'll talk about the methodology, the time series and stuff like that. But as an output, we'll, we'll simplify the process, we'll make it much more accurate. And that's all the pain point for, for the finance director, the CFO. So once you start solving those individual pain points, you automatically make those people your friends and then you automatically automatically gets listened to in the boardroom. That's one point. The other point is always start with strategy, which is basically not data strategy, the business strategy, and then just say, okay, you've got a business strategy of having more customers, X number more customers. How can data help in that, in that business strategy? So there is no data strategy. Most data uh, CDOs or CDAOs fall into the trap of they join a company, they present a data strategy. I would not present a data strategy. I would just present the alignment of data with the business strategy. Again, it might be it might be the same as data strategy, but the again, the conclusion first saying, your conclusion is you want 100,000 customers in one year. This is how data can help. Your conclusion is you want much more profits. This is how data can help. Uh, so those two, I think, have worked very beautifully for me. The first one being much more effective and very few people do that. They go straight into, into the boardroom considering everybody is on the same level, which they are not, uh, solve pain points, make them understand on a one-to-one on -one basis what data can do for their problem, not your problem. Uh, and then you get much more traction and much more traction in the boardroom. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, it makes makes perfect sense. Um, maybe offline I'll ask you about that that model for churn. So I could do with knowing when people are about to leave. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Months in advance. Um, just, yeah. Just, um, okay, and, and I guess all of that makes makes perfect sense. There's obviously a lot of talk about the boardroom, right? So it's interesting because we're we're on a, a big project at the moment with a with a global business, and we're talking about what happens within the boardroom and the influence, and you know, um, I guess how influential the boardroom can be, and um, the fact that there's often other stakeholders outside of the boardroom that can be just as influential, and things like this. So I guess absolutely, yeah. I guess in terms of the overarching role that the boardroom does play in the success of I guess data analytics initiatives within those organisations. Kind of, where is that on that spectrum? Because I, I appreciate, obviously, it's very important to have that buy-in. But I guess beyond the sponsorship of yes, okay, this makes sense. You have our blessing, yeah. so forth and so on. What does the boardroom then bring beyond that, if anything? No, it's it's, it's a great question. I think. Uh... So the what the, so the boardroom brings the sponsorship, the culture, and the direction, uh, which which obviously is one of the most important things. But actually, and I've written quite a few blogs on this. It's the senior managers and the mid-level managers that are that are most important because they'll have to walk the walk. The boardroom can become a sponsor and say, "Okay, infrastructure change or digital transformation project. I am sponsoring it. I know I'm. I've I've given the investment." go away and do it. It's the people who go away and do it. They need to be motivated day in and day out. Uh, and in, I mean, and and obviously the, the art of storytelling to, uh, it doesn't stop for an analyst there. And the art of what's in it for them, again, doesn't stop uh, at the boardroom because you have to get those people engaged for the project to be a success. Uh, and lots of books have been written on, on not just data, but definitely the importance, the often underestimated impo- impact of middle managers. Uh, and we, I've seen that throughout my career. Uh, projects have failed and succeeded based on, again, either people have left because the change management did not work for them and the practices of change management uh, weren't good enough. They weren't engaged in the project. So it's uh, from a data perspective, it's it's our responsibility to keep them engaged along with people like project managers, change managers, but selling them the story of, okay, by the end of it, you will have learned a lot of lot of new things. You would become much more market worthy in terms of your skills. The, 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 after, the, after the project, your day-to-day life of manually doing stuff will improve. So again, spelling that out clearly as to what is in it for them on a short term, medium and long term, and also, what does it mean for their career prospects going forwards? And we have got various examples. One of the, one of the chaps I was working for in one of the, uh, as I was a consultant, he was doing BI day in and day out. Uh, and we uh, we basically pushed him into becoming a predictive modeler, learning R and Python, which he resisted initially because he has had those 20 years of SQL and Power BI. Eventually, he got that. And a couple of years after he got that, obviously, he was much uh, much relieved, uh, much enthused. His his profile went up. Uh, he became a quite quite a big big name in in what he did, and he was poached by various headhunters. So again, that that is the kind of story with people don't realize, and and we have to sell to them. Yeah, and I mean, when you think about that logically, it makes a lot of sense. I guess there's there's probably misconception in the industry, right? That you go and get the boardroom on side. And and that's it. You're golden. Um, but often it's it's not the boardroom that are doing any of the the actual heavy lifting or the change, right? Obviously, I'm sure it it can go a long way, right? If if they're sponsoring it, there's there's an element yeah. that, that holds a lot of weight and might help help to drive a culture towards that change. But ultimately, they're they're not responsible for doing that. And I think there's probably a misconception that just because the boardroom say so that it will happen. And obviously, as we both know, that's that's not the case. How does that store? And I know you touched upon it there briefly, but how do how do those stories then, from a data storytelling, and and what's important to those different groups of people? Because it makes complete sense. You know, you say to a, a CEO, you want to move into a new market and make ten million quid. You know, more. Yeah, of course they want to do that, so so they can get on board with that. 
but the senior managers that are doing the heavy lifting, as we all know, if adoption's not there, it's not a success. And mm. how do you go? Well, I guess how the, the levels of story and what's important and how you kind of uh, able the, the differences in the articulation of that, what, what are the kind of key things there? The key thing starts with knowing knowing your stakeholder really and what what is good for them, what motivates them. Uh, so for an IT project manager, it could be uh, having a having a much more higher scope project, for example, or making them fame. I mean, one one of the uh, one of the blogs I always write is is everybody has got a self motivation of what makes me famous, really. And if you cater to that self motivation at any level, uh, then it's then you've got it essentially. So it's it's the old marketing concept of knowing your customer. In this case, your customer is your employee that you're working with. You know what their attitudes and what motivates them. And then you accordingly shift your story. As in the case example that I said, one of the person was, I want to be out and about. I, I want to be much more famous for the work that I do. And I want to get outside of the BI work. And then you know their motivation is to get along and you, and you put them on a project which caters to their motivation and they are much more engaged. So it's just simply uh, the, the same logic uh, of knowing the, knowing your customer and catering to what what is making them famous. Yeah, yeah, and that's a really interesting concept, and I guess hopefully one that the audience um, can kind of keep hold of, right? Because I guess it makes complete sense if you can cater to the the motivations of any person that you're dealing with and that you want to try and get you know to to get them to do something for you, whatever that may be at whatever level, you know. Yeah, makes makes perfect yeah. sense. I guess back to the boardroom and in and around the boardroom. What are what are some of the things that we should be using or focusing on from a business perspective in regards to what we're using data and analytics for in order to make those you know those conversations a little bit more easy and, and accessible. I think use cases and proof of concepts always work well. I mean, uh, always work good. You you can walk, you can talk a lot, uh, but if you walk the walk and show them, then nothing works better than that. So I would I would really strongly recommend picking up a single tactical use case just to showcase stuff. So we picked I mean, in in the Royal Mint, for example, we picked up saying, okay, your marketing is not highly personalized. We'll develop predictive models along the customer journey and we'll measure them over a three month period and we'll showcase the results. Uh, and the results were much better, uh, hugely influential. And uh, ever since there, uh, the chief commercial officer, who I reported to at the time, was uh, was was over the moon, and she was going deploy predictive models in in every part of the business, even even businesses where there was no tangible business case to deploy them. So, <laughs> so, so it, it. I mean, the point I'm making is it it got her so much excited that she was she became an evangelist, and she became the cheerleader for predictive models in that scenario. So yeah, the, the best thing we can do as data leaders is obviously tell the story, but showcase the story with, with a strong use case, which, which is simple, easy to understand, resonates with everybody, and is presented in a way, again, very commercial value saying, again, conclusions first, with your pre-predictive model, your ROI or your revenue was X. After that, like for like, your revenue has gone up by X. That's the storyline. If anybody wants to go deeper as to what you did, how you did it, then obviously, uh, then obviously, you can always do that. Yeah, just thinking out loud here, and I've seen and heard and been kind of involved in a few of these conversations recently around the, I guess the the topic and the concepts of value and value realization, and yeah. I guess the the part that data and analytics capabilities play within that process right you know so you're talking there about that predictive model produced you know Mm. great great results and i guess there's there's a bit of a debate in the industry around the gap that exists then between would they have ever got there without your help and if not how big is that gap and then i guess from a boardroom perspective how you demonstrate that that value has come from you you know because i guess there's a lot of talk isn't there around it's difficult to put a tangible number on ROI sometimes and for yeah. a whole host of reasons, it's a very gray area. But I guess if you're helping your marketing team to do X and, uh, you know, upside is, is Y, but yeah. what, but, but you know, how, how do you go about showing and demonstrating to the boardroom that that's come from you, if that makes sense? 
It makes sense. I think I've been caught up in this debate quite a few times. I mean, I think it has been overcooked than at what it should be. I mean, if you define what good looks like before you start, first of all, two things. First of all, you have to pick a project where calculating the ROI is easier. Uh, and there are various projects like that. I won't. I don't think there is any organization where you 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 pick up a project and you say uh, the ROI is basically non-existent or you can't showcase it at all. There's very few cases. And as as a good data analyst, if you if you can't do that, then obviously there's question marks around your abilities. And the first thing is for every project, you have to define the success criteria right at the start, and you have to pitch it to to every team that you're pitching that project. And there's no ifs and buts. We have to, for Go Compare, for example, we did that even with brand, which is the most intangible thing. Uh, and but what we came up with the success criteria, saying okay, to the finance guy, saying these are the five KPIs. Uh, we will move as a part of that. We will move it from X to Y. Uh, and we had a good discussion, but discussion upfront rather than at the end of the campaign, saying yeah. if we do that, we'll classify the brand campaign as a success. And, and it so happened. I mean, one of the campaign was a success. The other one wasn't a success, but we defined that. So I, I think, again, I think the debate has been overcooked. You have to define a good analyst, an experienced analyst will always define the success criteria very simply, very tangibly right at the start. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense. I guess there's a bit of debate around that. You know, if, if, if you help your sales director make five million more sales next year, then obviously the sales director is probably not going to want to admit that you know that that was that was your work right He's, he or she is going to say yeah. well that was that was all my doing so is, is there a battle around that sometimes or again is that being uh, yeah i think it's clever in picking picking your project and that's what i said at the earlier you have to be very careful so the marketing mix model there was nothing else changed apart from the model so the customer journey was exactly the same what we did was introduce the predictive model at every stage of their journey that was it so there was no claim from the marketing team or customer experience team saying we have done that. So again, you have to be very clever at what you pick uh, at the start. And I truly appreciate that. There are hundreds of projects where ROI is very complicated, but why would you pick them? <laughs> why would you pick them as your showcase project? We're only yeah. talking about one showcase project to start with. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That makes that makes sense. I guess something that I think you know you've been quite vocal and, and are obviously passionate about Samir is getting to the point where data and analytics becomes that spark, I guess, for innovation, you know, new ideas, new revenue streams, new products, entering new markets and territories, all of that type of stuff. Yeah. How do you how do you get to that point, you know, from a boardroom perspective where data is seen as that kind of cultural enabler to to do to, to be just you know think bigger be better yeah i think that's a very interesting question i think quite a few i mean first of all you have to build trust uh, in the boardroom that's that's the main thing trust and credibility goes a lot further whether it's data whether it's any other uh, thing we as as the data and the insight people are placed in a lucky position because Two reasons. One is good. One is not good. Good is, is uh, within. So within the COVID situation, for example, uh, the whole country strategy is led by data because there's nothing else. They haven't faced it before. They don't know what to do with it. Uh, kind of if they make their own decision, then they can get it massively wrong and the blame is on them. So data in that case, in a, in, in a bad way, but in a good sense, becomes a scapegoat saying, okay, it's the, it's the decision, it's the scientific decision. This is what data is telling me. I'll base my data on that because I've got nothing to go at. So in innovation circumstances, we are in a lucky position because data becomes that spark saying, okay, I've got an idea, let's test it with data or let's ask data for a proactive idea or the data analyst. So first of all, our positioning is quite good in that sense. What we are not good at is we don't give, I mean, again, one of the quotes I heard in one of the blogs or seminars was, if you are innovating for, to, for tomorrow, then see what people are doing as a hobby today and, and how they are playing with data, okay? And that's the, think, that's the thinking time that Google is famous for saying, give 10, 20% of the time to your analyst. It has happened to us so on so many occasions. So, for example, we proactively recommended quite a few new products within the Royal Mint and, and quite a few new propositions. But that, I mean, I mean, and this is not blowing my own trumpet, but before I joined and the resource was less, 
people were just churning out insight without following up on how much of an insight was being followed. I think as analysts, we have to leave a lot of time before analysis to think about whether the question is right or not, and whether we are asking the right question, redefining that question, then do the middle part of analyzing it, and then a big chunk of thinking, storytelling, visualizing, and basically pulling out the golden nugget from that analysis. And this won't come from every analysis, but pulling out the golden nugget from that analysis saying, I can see a spark here, which is a spark for a new business. So the recommendation could be, this is a spark for a new business. Let's set up a project team. Let's investigate further, probably involve much more market sizing or customer research before we come on. But that begins the spark and some of the ideas might not might not be uh, might not be followed up, but that having that initial time and the end time to think uh, and to have that sort of giving them the hobby time, saying play with data and tell me what is something. So, for example, the Royal Mint. In, interestingly, one of the examples we had our annual report released last week or two weeks ago, and you will people who have seen that one of the biggest thing mentioned in the annual report is the success of our precious metals division. And one of the success story has been us identifying the appetite up within COVID, the appetite for millennials to invest in gold. That was not a market at all for us. We just saw that market surge because the stock market crashed. They had more money because they didn't have, uh, some of them didn't have family. They had money to invest and they weren't sure where, where to invest because the stock market has crashed, banks weren't giving interest and the gold price was searching surging and we saw that trend and we recommended to our precious metals team and that has been a big big success story so that sort of that's not an innovation but that sort of sparks a new revenue stream idea or in entering the new market idea mm. yeah yeah and that's that's really interesting and, and makes i guess makes a lot of sense and uh, i've said this numerous times on the podcast Samir, but our guests come on and speak about these things so logically and eloquently that I often wonder what what the uh, what the trouble is, <laughs> but um, but there you go. So I, I guess in terms of operating models, because again we, we speak about this a lot, right? In terms of what's the right operating model to succeed with data yeah. and analytics, and and I guess what does that translate to in the boardroom and their adoption and buy-in and you know sponsorship and all of that type of stuff. How do you go about defining or, if needs be, changing what the operating model looks like in order to to successfully, you know, I guess, change and transform organizations with the use of data? Yeah. Uh, I mean, the main thing is you have to first assess the maturity of the organization and the trajectory that, that they are on, uh, because there will be different answers to different type of organizations. Once you've assessed that, then I... I mean, what has worked very well for me in the past, and there's lots of things that haven't worked, uh, but we haven't got the time for that. What has worked for me in the past is really giving them those penny drop moments that they wouldn't have talked about, whether that is an example internally or externally. So some of the examples I often use is uh, of Uber and and Google and and Vitality as well, where Uber is saying, do you know you can create businesses out of data? And somebody will say, no, no, I don't believe it. How is that? Tell me something. And I'll say, look at Uber. It's reliant on one data, which is Google Maps data, which it doesn't even own. And its operating model revolves around that data. If you take that data away, it wouldn't have existed in its current form. So, mm-hmm. and people then get it saying, yeah, I can see how I can create data. And then similarly, Google, big company, huge company, multi-billion, one of the biggest in the world, didn't have any commercial model until the Google AdWords came about. And Google AdWords is people searching. So you're people searching, taking the taking people's searches away and bidding on that search. It's all about, if you take that data away, Google did not have a uh, model, uh, commercial model. Facebook did not have a commercial model. So if you, if you re-hinge and pivot your business around that data, then that is where the penny starts to drop. And it is those examples uh, along with how can you do that in your business? Which data can you directly influence, sell, or indirectly use to create new business propositions uh, can be quite eye-opening to them. Because again, data is a relatively new field in the boardroom. So the boardroom will have the evergreen fields of HR, finance, marketing, IT. Uh, You will very, I mean, in in mature organizations, you'll find data people or other change management people or transformation, digital people and things like that. So being a new field, 
people don't know what they don't know. The first port of call is you need to understand what they don't know and you have to explain it to them. And you don't know a lot, lots of things. So you didn't need to absorb things as well. But you don't know. Uh, I mean, you have to showcase to them what they don't know in an easy way as a success story to what others have done or what you have done in other businesses. And that is where the uh, the engagement comes in. Yeah. And again, makes perfect sense. Obviously, there's a whole cultural piece right around this. Absolutely. I'm, yeah. I'm really keen to kind of get into with you because I, I guess very logical to, to kind of think about and suggest that if you can show a CEO is going to make X more amount of money, then of course they can get on board with that. Uh, but as we spoke about earlier, adoption at the you know perceived lower levels becomes a big problem. But there's so many businesses that are going on that data analytics journey. Hmm. My view is that that's largely down to a lot of obligation and peer pressure in the industry. Everyone's talking yeah. about data analytics. Yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> Uh, we, we should be doing something. We need to be seen to be doing something. We don't yeah. want to be seen to be not taking action on this because, you know, then people will know that we're probably behind the curve and, you know, we lose competitive advantage and, and all yeah. of that type of stuff. But a lot of that then, a lot of that journey at the start becomes around the technicalities, you know, so we need a data lake and we're building these products and solutions and platforms and, and all of that's great and very important, but ultimately if it's not being driven in a way that aligns with the business, then, hmm. you know, the, the yeah. but how do you get to that cultural piece where you, you effectively change the way you, you're asking these people to change the way they've operated for many years, right. In, in some yeah. instances. Um, and obviously when that doesn't happen, the value is not realized. And that's when we get into the conversation around data and analytics doesn't work and it might get revisited in, a year or two's time and I'm sure at that point the board might start to lose interest you know how, how yeah. do we get over what is for some reason seem, seemingly become such a massive obstacle in the industry around changing the culture of a business to be more data driven or led or enabled or whatever the case may be yeah I mean I mean obviously data literacy is part of that but I think uh, any change in behavior and mindset and the way you have made decisions it's difficult for all of us to change right it, it's we have to be as data analysts we, first of all we have to be quite clear on what what our sense of achievement is over what time period i always say lots of evolutions lead to revolution so data is not a big bang theory where you have you come in you make a huge change and that's it you've got the culture change it it doesn't happen like that it's it's a multiple series of Okay, you showcase it, you tell them the story, they are bought in the story, they are engaged at the start, you are kind of the fashion for the month, uh, and you have to make the most of that fashion and the high PR that you've received on that month, so you have to showcase, you have to communicate, you have to evangelize, you have to be present, you have to be visible, uh, all, that kind, all that kind of PR stunt that the data senior data person has to do. Uh, but going forwards, those... I mean, fashion can fall out quite quickly if, if, you, if you're not visible and you don't constantly showcase what you're trying to do. So you are constantly in that justification mode, at least for the one to two year period saying, look, you've invested in data. This is what you've got. Look this and being true as well, saying, OK, we've invested in this part and that hasn't worked. So we'll try something different. Uh, but overall, your investment in data has given us X, Y, Z uh, and has been part of that. I mean, within within the Royal Mint and within various organizations, I've strongly encouraged my team, and we do that uh, quite uh, day in and day out at the Royal Mint, is every big project that we work on, look at the commercial outputs and, and basically work out the impact that the insight team has got on that commercial output. So basically, I've got a spreadsheet which says our the value of our work is X million, basically. Uh, if people can challenge that, yes, they can challenge that. Uh, there are various things that they can challenge, but at least we've got that spreadsheet. So if somebody asks the question of, well, and, and I evangelize that as well in, in, in senior meetings. Uh, there are questions around that, but at least they know how commercial we are and how commercially minded they are, we are. Mm -hmm. So that's, that, that's quite an interesting. I mean, we, you have, it's, it's a journey and you have to make it clear that this is a journey with specific milestones. 
this is uh, this is an evolution from where we are, and and you will. I mean, the, every transformation or change in mindset takes takes ages to get there. But as long as you are clear on that journey, uh, then I think I think, and you set your milestones quite clearly in front of them, then I think you start on that. I mean, obviously, maturity of the organization, the data literacy aspect of the executive team or the team that you are catering to plays a big role in that. The background of the CEO, the background of the executive members plays a big role in that. Um, so, so yeah, there's lots of things at at play. You have to play that that game of understanding everybody's background, the organization's maturity, setting your milestones and setting expectations correctly, and having that tangible uh, link between commercial value and your inputs. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. So you're talking there, obviously, around a kind of strategic initiative, right? a strategy around how you're going to transform that culture over a period of time. And you mentioned earlier on around how you don't necessarily talk about data strategy per se. You talk about a business strategy that's supported by data. Yeah. Yeah. Again, as I mentioned earlier, I think uh, there's a lot of obligation in the industry to be seen to be doing this stuff. And often I think then businesses go on that journey chasing their tail without any real strategic thought around why they're doing it, what they're looking to achieve, you know, for fear of, you know, looking like they're not doing anything, if that makes yeah. sense. So <laughs> why, why is that in, on your, in your opinion? You know, why, why do businesses seemingly set out doing data and analytics kind of projects and programs and this, that and the other without a set strategy around what that looks like? I mean, it's one of those things. Data. I mean, also, data is the brain, not the body. So you don't see you don't see it happening. What is happening inside? And and from from a data perspective, I think, I think, I mean, again, data is quite a technical field in itself, really, isn't it? And people people tend to get more technical rather than get get more commercial. And I think it's that challenge of of the data senior data person having constantly wearing two hats and knowing which hat to concentrate on at what level and at what point. And I think that's where we are falling behind and not necessarily, I mean, having having specialism in two things, it's quite a difficult thing uh, considering how big that thing is. And uh, various organizations have, have, have various various streams. For example, you can be a specialist in HR, but you can completely miss out the customer angle. For example, I've seen that happening lots of occasions. You can be a specialist in operations and manufacturing, but again, you can completely miss out the uh, the motivation and employee angle. So, I mean, and, and data. I mean, the data being a new field is exactly that. I mean, you can be very data focused, saying I get, I want to get my data hundred percent right, so it helps everybody. But in the doing, you can spend a lot of time without proving your value and you can be kicked out. <laughs> so it's having that having that hat on, commercial hat on. Uh, and having that, again, having that awareness of you do something, you communicate that, prove the value, then you start doing something. Well, then, then you continue doing that. So at every juncture, you have to communicate back what you're doing. We also fall foul a lot on bigger projects saying start of the project and then the big bang at the end rather than having anything in the middle uh, which again creates that, that area of skepticism within senior stakeholders saying what's the digital transformation project doing i don't know what to, we talked about infrastructural changes what is happening over there so you have to communicate communication is quite key having that commercial awareness within that communication is quite key and we have to be quite self-aware. Uh, so we have to be a very strong leader and a commercial leader and a data person at the same time. I think that is where people are falling down. Yeah, and I, I'd agree. I mean, I'm a, I'm a massive advocate for this. And to be honest to me, sometimes I come in for a little bit of flack on platforms like LinkedIn. Um, and I think my message is sometimes misunderstood. Like the the, the technology and the technicalities behind this are so important because obviously that's what drives the vehicle right to allow us to 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 do this stuff but ultimately i think we've got to have a commercial focus because if we don't it's just not going to get used there's no no adoption there's going to be no buy-in they're not going to care so we can you can be as technically focused as we want but if the other side is lacking then it's a complete waste of time and probably the other way around as well right to to be honest with you yeah Absolutely. I mean, one of the things I always, I mean, changing cultures. So for example, I worked as a consultant in one of the organizations and there was very much data is a utility. And 
I was I I changed the culture very much, saying no no data is not an enabler, data is not a utility, data is a commercial driver, and this is how it is a commercial driver. So once you change that mindset, the, that mindset of bucketing data into enabler and utility, you will never get the culture to that level that you want to, and you have to be very clear and illustrate that, not just walk, not just talk the talk, but walk the walk, saying okay, you are saying. Mr. CDO, that data is a commercial driver. Prove me, and once you've proven, that's fine. I, I'll I'll then agree. Uh, the definitions of how data gets bucketed in is quite important, and you will find various organizations who will still say infrastructure is a utility, data is a utility, data is an enabler is a big one. For me, it's not an enabler; it's a commercial driver, and there's a very tangible difference between the two. Mm, yeah, yeah, uh, interesting. Makes makes sense, I guess. As we try to wrap this up then, Samir, obviously I know outside of your gig with the Royal Mint, you're involved in a couple of other organizations as a an advisor, NED type of figure for the data and analytics world. Something that I massively buy into. I I really think that there's I think that's the way the industry is going. Um, so much so we, we've kind of set up an advisory practice here. I know you and I have spoke about that kind of offline as well. But I guess to, to finish up, why, and this is just an observation more so than anything else from my perspective, but mm. it seems to me that many organizations and their executive teams and, and boards are more willing to take external advice over the advice that they may be given from their you know data leader whether that's a cdo or 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 something otherwise why why does that happen and i guess i thought i'd ask you the question because obviously you're you're very well placed right because you do both of those roles effectively I think part of it is, is this, first of all, there's nothing wrong in it. I mean, part of it, if if I'm a CDO and if an external CDO comes in to give some of their advice, I would value their uh, value their opinion. And, and I think it's it's the maturity of the data as a field in its own. Uh, I will put my hand up and say, data is not as mature a field, and we are not technically in terms of that maturity curve where finance or HR or marketing is. A lot of problems that we face on a daily basis is new to us. I mean, COVID, for example, is a typical problem facing the country. It's a new problem. So what what do you do? You bring in lots of data, lots of external people to give you advice. Uh, We face that in different settings every day in a data world. We don't know what we don't know. And when we don't know, obviously, we've got some data. Again, one of the the context, one of the uh, interview panels I was on, the other, the other stuff the data guys struggle with is data knows, data doesn't understand the context. So we work on the parameters of what has happened, basically low parameter and high parameter. If anything goes beyond that, then data really cannot answer your question. If, if, if COVID comes in, we have never had COVID before, so we cannot answer that question. If an organization certainly opens up 70 international centers, which it has never done that, we cannot answer that question. So and that is where you need some external support from marketing. So obviously we can do internal analysis and look at things inside out, but I think you need the outside in perspective from, from an external CDO saying, okay, I'm looking at, I'm standing outside the tunnel and looking what it is there to come so that you gear up for that. Mm-hmm. While the C- internal CDO is looking inside the tunnel saying, okay, I understand the internal operations and the operating model. So I think both the outside in and the inside out is very important for a for a nascent and an, uh, and a field like data, which has not reached its maturity. And it's the old age old concept of triangulation as well, which we have used a lot of times really in market research and st- stuff. You know something, you know that you don't know something. If a senior person comes in and tells you and gives you another view, which is quite a credible view, uh, then it's kind of triangulating the things into something much more tangible than you could have think about. So those two things, I think, are, are quite important. I think, I think, I, th- I think you'll have more and more of these kind of interim fractional data people uh, because the the industry will not mature. It will not mature because of the technology upgradation and the changes happening around us. And the more that happens, the more the need for this external advice. And and I fully 100% agree uh, to that model of having an internal CEO who knows inside out what the business is, 
but also having an external person, which is, you can call it a phone a friend saying, okay, I am placed in this situation. This is my view. What do you think? And you see that funnily enough, we had a, sadly, we had a very bad first pregnancy uh, with my wife and, uh, and we, we, I mean, it was twin. We had, sadly we ended up in, ended up losing one of those childs. But when uh, when we saw when had, it was such a complicated pregnancy that our uh, there were two doctors seeing us, uh, seeing my wife. They didn't. I mean, they haven't ex, they haven't faced that scenario before. So they had to call other doctors, similar specialists across London, across uh, Birmingham to basically take advice and then took the decision, which I think in the end helped us save the, save the life of the, the, the other child who is hale and hearty now, thankfully. So it's, it's that kind of scenario where you take the, where you don't rely on your own skills, but you take an external advice to get that decision to a place which can, which can in this case, save lives. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, first of all, Sameer, thank you uh, so much for kind of being open to, to share that and using yeah, that that's personal... Fine personal circumstances as an example and a, and a, and a great example um, as well and I think look I, I love I love your positivity around that because I think this subject is often broached from a negative lens you know it's often a case of well an organization either they don't want to commit to hiring someone full-time or you know they don't trust the big advisory firms or want to pay all of that money so there's there's a gap in the middle that needs to be serviced and, and I agree there is a gap in the middle that needs to be serviced but there's also an element of as you said you know it's an extra set of eyes it's validation it's hmm. triangulation you know all of the things that you mentioned there to, hmm. to ultimately move the business further along that roadmap right to success which is ultimately really all we're doing it for so it makes yeah. makes complete sense well, look, Samir, look, really appreciate your time. Um, a hugely insightful conversation and, and loved every second. So thanks so much for coming on and, and sharing. And um, yeah, look forward to, uh, to speaking with you again soon. Great. Thanks a lot, Kyle. Really enjoyed it. I hope your listeners find something useful to pick up from this conversation and happy to help going forward. Sure. Perfect. Excellent. Well, you have a great weekend. Yeah, you too. See you. Bye. That's it for this episode of Driven by Data, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back next week speaking with another thought leader from the world of data and analytics. Until then, please follow Orbition Group on social media if you've not already done so, where you'll be able to subscribe and therefore be made aware of the podcasts as they arrive. And please share, like, and leave reviews so that more people from our industry get to hear and benefit from these two. If you've got any questions or you want to suggest ideas for topics or potential guests, then please feel free to reach out to me. Thanks for listening and I'll be back next week.